Twelve Years a Slave Solomon Northup Chapter 13 On my arrival at Master Epps, in obedience to his order, the first business upon which I entered was the making of an axe helve. The handles in use there are simply a round, straight stick. I made a crooked one, shaped like those to which I'd been accustomed at the North. When finished and presented to Epps, he looked at it with astonishment, unable to determine exactly what it was. He'd never before seen such a handle, and when I explained its conveniences, he was forcibly struck with the novelty of the idea. He kept it in the house a long time, and when his friends called, was wont to exhibit it as a curiosity. It was now the season of hoeing. I was first sent into the cornfield, and afterwards set to scraping cotton. In this employment I remained until hoeing time was nearly past, when I began to experience the symptoms of approaching illness. I was attacked with chills, which were succeeded by a burning fever. I became weak and emaciated, and frequently so dizzy that it caused me to reel and stagger like a drunken man. Nevertheless, I was compelled to keep up my row. When in health, I found little difficulty in keeping pace with my fellow laborers, but now it seemed to be an utter impossibility. Often, I fell behind when the driver's lash was sure to greet my back, infusing into my sick and drooping body a little temporary energy. I continued to decline until at length the whip became entirely ineffectual. The sharpest sting of the rawhide could not arouse me. Finally, in September, when the busy season of cotton picking was at hand, I was unable to leave my cabin. Up to this time I had received no medicine, nor any attention from my master or mistress. The old cook visited me occasionally, preparing me corn coffee, and sometimes boiling a bit of bacon when I had grown too feeble to accomplish it myself. When it was said that I would die, Master Epps, unwilling to bear the loss, which the death of an animal worth a thousand dollars would bring upon him, concluded to incur the expense of sending me to Holmesville for Dr. Wines. He announced to Epps that it was the effect of the climate, and there was a probability of his losing me. He directed me to eat no meat, and to partake of no more food than was absolutely necessary to sustain life. Several weeks elapsed, during which time, under the scanty diet to which I was subjected, I had partially recovered. One morning, long before I was in proper condition to labor, Epps appeared at the cabin door, and presenting me a sack, ordered me to the cotton field. At this time I'd had no experience whatever in cotton picking. It was an awkward business indeed. While others used both hands, snatching the cotton and depositing it in the mouth of the sack, with a precision and dexterity that was incomprehensible to me, I had to seize the ball with one hand and deliberately draw out the white, gushing blossom with the other. Depositing the cotton in the sack, moreover, was a difficulty that demanded the exercise of both hands and eyes. I was compelled to pick it from the ground where it would fall, nearly as often as from the stalk where it had grown. I made havoc also with the branches, loaded with the yet unbroken balls, the long, cumbersome sack swinging from side to side in a manner not allowable in the cotton field. 
After a most laborious day, I arrived at the gin house with my load. When the scale determined its weight to be only 95 pounds, not half the quantity required of the poorest picker, Epps threatened the severest flogging, but in consideration of my being a raw hand, concluded to pardon me on that occasion. The following day, and many days succeeding, I returned at night with no better success. I was evidently not designed for that kind of labor. I had not the gift, the dexterous fingers, and quick motion of Patsy, who could fly along one side of a row of cotton, stripping it of its undefiled and fleecy whiteness miraculously fast. Practice and whipping were alike unavailing, and Epps, satisfied of it at last, swore I was a disgrace, that I was not fit to associate with a cotton-picking nigger, that I could not pick enough in a day to pay the trouble of weighing it, and that I should go into the cotton field no more. I was now employed in cutting and hauling wood, drawing cotton from the field to the gin house, and performed whatever other service was required. Suffice to say, I was never permitted to be idle. It was rarely that a day ever passed by without one or more whippings. This occurred at the time the cotton was weighed. The delinquent, whose weight had fallen short, was taken out, stripped, made to lie upon the ground face downwards when he received a punishment proportioned to his offense. It is the literal, unvarnished truth that the crack of the lash and the shrieking of the slaves can be heard from dark till bedtime on Epps's plantation any day, almost, during the entire period of the cotton-picking season. The number of lashes is graduated according to the nature of the case. Twenty-five are deemed a mere brush, inflicted, for instance, when a dry leaf or a piece of ball is found in the cotton, or when a branch is broken in the field. Fifty is the ordinary penalty following all delinquencies of the next higher grade. One hundred is called severe. It is the punishment inflicted for the serious offense of standing idle in the field. From one hundred and fifty to two hundred is bestowed upon him who quarrels with his cabin mates, and five hundred, well laid on, besides the mangling of the dogs, perhaps, is certain to consign the poor, unpitied runaway to weeks of pain and agony. During the two years Epps remained on the plantation at Bayou Huff Power, he was in the habit, as often as once in a fortnight at least, of coming home intoxicated from Holmesville. The shooting matches almost invariably concluded with a debauch. At such times he was boisterous and half-crazy. Often he would break the dishes, chairs, and whatever furniture he could lay his hands on. When satisfied with his amusement in the house, he would seize the whip and walk forth into the yard. Then it behooved the slaves to be watchful and exceeding wary. The first one who came within reach felt the smart of his lash. Sometimes for hours he would keep them running in all directions, dodging around the corners of the cabins. Occasionally he'd come upon one unawares, and if he succeeded in inflicting a fair round blow, it was a feat that much delighted him. The younger children and the aged who'd become inactive suffered then. In the midst of the confusion, he'd slyly take his stand behind a cabin, waiting with raised whip to dash it into the first black face that peeped cautiously around the corner. 
At other times, he would come home in a less brutal humor. Then there must be a merrymaking. Then all must move to the measure of a tune. Then Master Epps must needs regale his melodious ears with the music of a fiddle. Then did he become buoyant, elastic, gaily, tripping the light fantastic toe around the piazza and all through the house. Tibeats, at the time of my sale, had informed him I could play the violin. He had received this information from Ford. Through the importunities of Mistress Epps, her husband had been induced to purchase me one during a visit to New Orleans. Frequently, I was called into the house to play before the family, Mistress being passionately fond of music. All of us would be assembled in the large room of the great house whenever Epps came home in one of his dancing moods. No matter how worn out and tired we were, there must be a general dance. When properly stationed on the floor, I would strike up a tune. Dance, you damn niggers, dance, Epps would shout. Then there must be no halting or delay, no slow or languid movements. All must be brisk and lively and alert. Up and down, heel and toe, and away we go, was the order of the hour. Epps' portly form mingled with those of his dusky slaves, moving rapidly through all the mazes of the dance. Usually his whip was in his hand, ready to fall about the ears of the presumptuous thrall who dared to rest a moment, or even stopped to catch his breath. When he was himself exhausted, there would be a brief cessation, but it would be very brief. With a slash and crack and flourish of the whip, he'd shout again, Dance, niggers, dance! And away they would go once more, pell-mell, while I, spurred by an occasional sharp touch of the lash, sat in a corner extracting from my violin a marvelous quick-stepping tune. The mistress often upbraided him, declaring she would return to her father's house at Cheneyville. Nevertheless, there were times she could not restrain a burst of laughter on witnessing his uproarious pranks. Frequently, we were thus detained until almost morning, bent with excessive toil, actually suffering for a little refreshing rest, and feeling rather as if we could cast ourselves upon the earth and weep, many a night in the house of Edwin Epps have his unhappy slaves been made to dance and laugh. Notwithstanding these deprivations in order to gratify the whim of an unreasonable master, we had to be in the field as soon as it was light, and during the day perform the ordinary and accustomed task. Such deprivations could not be urged at the scales in extenuation of any lack of weight, or in the cornfield for not hoeing with the usual rapidity. The whippings were just as severe as if we'd gone forth in the morning, strengthened and invigorated by a night's repose. Indeed, after such frantic revels, he was always more sour and savage than before, punishing for slighter causes, and using the whip with increased and more vindictive energy. Ten years I toiled for that man without a reward. Ten years of my incessant labor has contributed to increase the bulk of his possessions. Ten years I was compelled to address him with downcast eyes and uncovered head, in the attitude and language of a slave. I am indebted to him for nothing save undeserved abuse and stripes. Beyond the reach of his inhuman thong, and standing on the soil of the free state where I was born, thanks be to heaven, 
I can raise my head once more among men. I can speak of the wrongs I've suffered and of those who inflicted them with upraised eyes. But I have no desire to speak of him or any other one otherwise than truthfully. Yet to speak truthfully of Edwin Epps would be to say, He is a man in whose heart the quality of kindness or of justice is not found. A rough, rude energy, united with an uncultivated mind and an avaricious spirit, are his prominent characteristics. He's known as a nigger-breaker, distinguished for his faculty of subduing the spirit of the slave, and priding himself upon his reputation in this respect as a jockey boasts of his skill in managing a refractory horse. He looked upon a colored man, not as a human being, responsible to his creator for the small talent entrusted to him, but as a chattel personal, as mere live property, no better, except in value, than his mule or dog. When the evidence, clear and indisputable, was laid before him that I was a free man, and as much entitled to my liberty as he, when on the day I left, he was informed that I had a wife and children, as dear to me as his own babes to him, he only raved and swore, denouncing the law that tore me from him, and declaring he would find out the man who had forwarded the letter that disclosed the place of my captivity, if there was any virtue or power in money, and would take his life. He thought of nothing but his loss, and cursed me for having been born free. He could have stood unmoved and seen the tongues of his poor slaves torn out by the roots. He could have seen them burned to ashes over a slow fire or gnawed to death by dogs if it only brought him profit. Such a hard, cruel, unjust man is Edwin Epps. There was but one greater savage in Bayou Boeuf than he. Jim Burns' plantation was cultivated, as already mentioned, exclusively by women. That barbarian kept their backs so sore and raw that they could not perform the customary labor demanded daily of the slave. He boasted of his cruelty, and through all the country round was accounted a more thoroughgoing, energetic man than even Epps. A brute himself, Jim Burns had not a particle of mercy for his subject brutes, and like a fool, whipped and scourged away the very strength upon which depended his amount of gain. Epps remained on Huff Power two years, when having accumulated a considerable sum of money, he expended it in the purchase of the plantation on the east bank of Bayou Boeuf, where he still continues to reside. He took possession of it in 1845, after the holidays were passed. He carried thither with him nine slaves, all of whom, except myself and Susan, who has since died, remain there yet. He made no addition to this force, and for eight years the following were my companions in his quarters. Abram, Wiley, Phoebe, Bob, Henry, Edward, and Patsy. All these except Edward, born since, were purchased out of a drove by Epps during the time he was overseer for Archie B. Williams, whose plantation is situated on the shore of Red River, not far from Alexandria. Abram was tall, standing a full head above any common man. He is sixty years of age and was born in Tennessee. Twenty years ago he was purchased by a trader, carried into South Carolina, and sold to James Buford of Williamsburg County in that state. In his youth he was renowned for his great strength, 
but age and unremitting toil have somewhat shattered his powerful frame and enfeebled his mental faculties. Wiley's 48th, he was born on the estate of William Tassel, and for many years took charge of that gentleman's ferry over the Big Black River in South Carolina. Phoebe was the slave of Buford, Tassel's neighbor, and having married Wiley, he bought the latter at her instigation. Buford was a kind master, sheriff of the county, and in those days a man of wealth. Bob and Henry are Phoebe's children by a former husband, their father having been abandoned to give place to Wiley. That seductive youth had insinuated himself into Phoebe's affections, and therefore the faithless spouse had gently kicked her first husband out of her cabin door. Edward had been born to them on Bayou Huff Power. Patsy is 23, also from Buford's plantation. She's in no wise connected with the others, but glories in the fact that she is the offspring of a guinea nigger brought over to Cuba in a slave ship, and in the course of trade transferred to Buford, who was her mother's owner. This, as I learned from them, is a genealogical account of my master's slaves. For years they had been together. Often they recalled the memories of other days, and sighed to retrace their steps to the old home in Carolina. Troubles came upon their master Buford, which brought far greater troubles upon them, he became involved in debt, and, unable to bear up against his failing fortunes, was compelled to sell these and others of his slaves. In a chain gang, they'd been driven from beyond the Mississippi to the plantation of Archie B. Williams. Edwin Epps, who for a long while had been his driver and overseer, was about establishing himself in business on his own account at the time of their arrival, and accepted them in payment of his wages. Old Abram was a kind-hearted being, a sort of patriarch among us, fond of entertaining his younger brethren with grave and serious discourse. He was deeply versed in such philosophy as is taught in the cabin of the slave. But the great absorbing hobby of Uncle Abram was General Jackson, whom his young master in Tennessee had followed to the wars. He loved to wander back, in imagination, to the place where he was born, and to recount the scenes of his youth during those stirring times when the nation was in arms. He'd been athletic and more keen and powerful than the generality of his race, but now his eye had become dim and his natural force abated. Very often, indeed, while discussing the best method of baking the hoe cake or expatiating at large upon the glory of Jackson, he would forget where he left his hat or his hoe or his basket. And then would the old man be laughed at if Epps was absent, and whipped if he was present. So was he perplexed continually, and sighed to think that he was growing aged and going to decay. Philosophy and Jackson and forgetfulness had played the mischief with him, and it was evident that all of them combined were fast bringing down the gray hairs of Uncle Abram to the grave. Aunt Phoebe had been an excellent field hand, but latterly was put into the kitchen where she remained, except occasionally, in a time of uncommon hurry. She was a sly old creature, and when not in the presence of her mistress or her master, was garrulous in the extreme. Wiley, on the contrary, was silent. He performed his task without murmur or complaint, seldom indulging in the luxury of speech, except to utter a wish 
that he was away from Epps and back once more in South Carolina. Bob and Henry had reached the ages of 20 and 23 and were distinguished for nothing extraordinary or unusual, while Edward, a lad of 13, not yet able to maintain his row in the corn or the cotton field, was kept in the great house to wait on the little Epses. Patsy was slim and straight. She stood erect as the human form is capable of standing. There was an air of loftiness in her movement that neither labor nor weariness nor punishment could destroy. Truly, Patsy was a splendid animal, and were it not that bondage had enshrouded her intellect in utter and everlasting darkness, would have been chief among ten thousand of her people. She could leap the highest fences, and a fleet hound it was indeed that could outstrip her in a race. No horse could fling her from his back. She was a skillful teamster. She turned as true a furrow as the best, and at splitting rails there were none who could excel her. When the order to halt was heard at night, she would have her mules at the crib, unharnessed, fed, and curried, before Uncle Abram had found his hat. Not, however, for all or any of these was she chiefly famous. Such lightning-like motion was in her fingers as no other fingers ever possessed, and therefore it was that in cotton-picking time, Patsy was queen of the field. She had a genial and pleasant temper, and was faithful and obedient. Naturally, she was a joyous creature, a laughing, light-hearted girl, rejoicing in the mere sense of existence. Yet Patsy wept oftener and suffered more than any of her companions. She had been literally excoriated. Her back bore the scars of a thousand stripes. Not because she was backward in her work, nor because she was of an unmindful and rebellious spirit, but because it had fallen to her lot to be the slave of a licentious master and a jealous mistress. She shrank before the lustful eye of the one, and was in danger even of her life at the hands of the other, and between the two she was indeed accursed. In the great house, for days together there were high and angry words, poutings and estrangement, whereof she was the innocent cause. Nothing delighted the mistress so much as to see her suffer, and more than once, when Epps had refused to sell her, has she tempted me with bribes to put her secretly to death, and bury her body in some lonely place in the margin of the swamp. Gladly would Patsy have appeased this unforgiving spirit if it had been in her power. But not like Joseph dared she escape from Master Epps, leaving her garment in his hand. Patsy walked under a cloud. If she uttered a word in opposition to her master's will, the lash was resorted to at once to bring her to subjection, if she was not watchful when about her cabin or when walking in the yard, a billet of wood or a broken bottle, perhaps, hurled from her mistress' hand, would smite her unexpectedly in the face. The enslaved victim of lust and hate, Patsy had no comfort of her life. These were my companions and fellow slaves, with whom I was accustomed to be driven to the field, and with whom it has been my lot to dwell for ten years in the log cabins of Edwin Epps. They, if living, are yet toiling on the banks of Bayou Boeuf, never destined to breathe, as I now do, the blessed air of liberty, nor to shake off the heavy shackles that enthrall them until they shall lie down forever in the dust.